Welcome to Coffee and Conversations with Chris. We're glad you're here. Here's your host, Pastor Chris Atkinson. Good morning. This is Chris Atkinson, and I'm the pastor of Pinewoods Chapel. And you have stumbled onto Conversations. Oh, no, not Conversations with Chris. Coffee with Chris. So grab a coffee and uh, sit down. And we're going to talk about a very interesting topic today, which is civil disobedience and the church. And you might be thinking right off the bat that, uh, wow, civil disobedience, is that something we should do or not? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. In this world that we're living in right now, there's all kinds of things around us, maybe some uh, rules that we are not comfortable with and things that we see happening in our culture that we don't like. And so we immediately have this internal desire or, or motive to, to not obey and to do different things. So we're talking about this because it's incredibly important. It's relevant to us as Christians. It's also relevant to the world around us uh, because people kind of need to know what what has actually happened in history, what uh, God actually says in his word, and uh, how we navigate through all of these things. So today we're going to continue this discussion that we've been having about uh, civil disobedience and the church. And last week uh, I spent some time and just unpacked the role of the church in society. We're going to sort of continue on a little, a little bit about that uh, today, but also talk a lot about uh, what godly government actually looks like. Um, because I think there is uh, a misunderstanding even among Christians, uh, but definitely among people in the world about what, what does good government look like. Um, and it's important to realize that actually the Bible speaks to all matters of life. It speaks to leadership of kings and rulers and yes, uh, there are certain parts of our world today that have kings and queens. There's other parts of our world that have uh, prime ministers or governors or uh, different levels of, of government that uh, whether it's a, a deputy mayor in a township or a mayor of a large city or uh, prime ministers or premiers of provinces or governors of states or however we uh, even in the context of some of our places, we still have lords and princes. So all of those people are uh, leaders, they're governors, they're rulers over certain domains or territories. And the Bible actually has a ton of things to say for leaders and leaders that are rulers and that are responsible. And this Last week, we talked about the mandate of the church in this environment, and I'm just going to recap a little that the church uh, needs to be about the gospel and worshiping God and uh, telling people about Jesus. You know, that's really what the church needs to be about while we're discipling believers. And part of discipling people is encouraging them to obey the laws of the land. And that's another aspect that the church is to be about. And the church is also to be about uh, holding government accountable for good government. And what does good government look like? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today because it's important for us to know what the Bible actually says good government is so we know <laughs> what the standard is because God does have a standard. And we read in uh, Romans 13, 
we we see in Romans 13 that all government, all leaders are actually instituted by God. And this is a very important, even the wicked ones are allowed to be there because God has allowed it. And so for us to say that there's not wicked leaders is actually erroneous because across the world, we can think of many uh, times in history and instances even currently where there are wicked leaders in places that are incredibly corrupt. Uh, at the same time, uh, there are places where there are very godly people in places of government and they're doing their job as they've been instructed by the people to do their job and fulfilling their mandate that God has actually called them to do in that environment. So let's take some time and really just unpack what good government looks like. And as I said, the Bible actually uh, shares in a number of places. And in fact, there's so many places that I'm not going to go into all of them, but I just want to pull out some principles from some wisdom literature. So when we look at Ecclesiastes, when we look at Proverbs, when we even look at the Psalms, we see a lot of places where the word ruler or king is used. And in that context, there's wisdom that is gathered around those items of identification, i.e. ruler and king, that are telling them actually how to live and govern in the context of being a king. And uh, Proverbs 31 is a great example. It's a, it's a mom speaking to her son who's a king and giving him words of wisdom about how to actually rule. Um, there's all kinds of places we see uh, in the Old Testament where we have judges and kings like the book of first and second kings and first and second chronicles that talk all about the kings of Israel and what was good, who did uh, what was right in the eyes of God and who did what was evil in the eyes of God. So the scriptures are full of examples of what godly government actually looks like and where people are doing what is right in the eyes of God. And as we uh, move through history and we see different times in different places, different seasons, uh, because the Bible is written over a long period of time, that there is uh, kings and kingdoms that God actually says, hey, these are wise people. We can talk about the, the queen of she uh, Sheba who comes to get wisdom from King Solomon because of his vast known abilities in wisdom, but also in trade and everything else to take counsel from uh, King Solomon. We also see uh, a very, quote, pagan uh, time period where Babylon rises up and conquers Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon, which is King Nebuchadnezzar, actually grows to the point where he actually has this fear of God. And so there's all kinds of examples in scripture where we see all of these things that are playing out between godly governments and ungodly governments um, today all around the world there are godly governments and there are ungodly governments just depending on the context of the nation or the place and so for christians we kind of have to be able to decipher this we we need to know uh, what god has called us to what kind of government are we in what is our responsibility 
in in the laws of the land that we find ourselves in today. So I'm just going to go through a, a number of passages. And so one of the things we talked about last week is that we actually need to hold government accountable for good godly government. And this is a role of Christians. And number one, we need to pray. We need to pray for our leaders and and also instruct them and, and actually tell them what what their role is as it relates to God. The church has a responsibility because unbelievers don't know that they actually, especially if they're in government, they don't know that they have come into that role because God himself has placed them in that role. And we as the church have this responsibility to be trumpeting and saying, okay, all the leaders all around the world, you have been instituted, you've been placed in this position of governance by God. And this is something that the church actually doesn't do very often, especially in Canada, but it's something that it's quite uh, clear in scriptures that, uh, that that needs to happen and the church needs to do that. So we need to pray, we need to support, we need to uh, uh, show them that uh, God actually has a blueprint for them about how to, how to govern uh, godly and, and the difference between godly and ungodly uh, governance. So I'm just going to go through a couple of scriptures here about this. The first one, uh, which I thought was just so great uh, about how people need to be dealing with the situation that we're in right now. It's Proverbs 25, verse 15. It actually says, With patience, a ruler is persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Again, the book of Proverbs is all about this, just sort of these uh, ideas of wisdom or uh, um, a proverb is, is like a metaphor where it applies to situations. So, so this one here, it's with patience, a ruler is persuaded. And I think uh, as Christians, we need patience when we start talking to rulers. And it also talks about how a soft tongue will break a bone. So there's got to be a softness to our talking to leaders and rulers as we get to this point where we're holding governments accountable to godly government. Um, here's another one over in Proverbs 28, verse 2. It says, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. And I, I really like this particular passage of scripture because again, it just, it shows that the, here's this territory, this land, and that it's transgressing. It's in sin. It's in this place of total disobedience away from God. And it actually says in that place, it has many rulers. And so when you think of, well, what, well, wouldn't there just be one ruler in place? Well, what is what he's saying is that when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, the land is actually totally transgressing and sinning and just going off in a total different direction. And so there needs to be some kind of leadership there. And then it says, but a man, and it's singular, of understanding and knowledge its stability will long continue. So one of the things that leaders, rulers, kings, governors, prime ministers, premiers, mayors, deputy mayors, all of these people need is knowledge and understanding. 
And that actually only comes as people actually seek the knowledge and understanding of God, uh, because God actually is the source of wisdom. And over in uh, Proverbs 8, there is a amazing passage that's there. Proverbs 8, verses 8 to 16. And I want to go there and unpack that. Because it it's incredibly important that we actually see that there's a number of things that are needed for godly things. So the first thing here is we see knowledge and understanding. But over in Proverbs 8, verses 8 to 16, this is what Solomon, so Solomon is a, is a king, he's a leader, he's a ruler and governing authority, the great nation of Israel. And this is, and this is what he says in, in uh, Proverbs 8, verse 8. Uh, sorry, I'm going to start at verse 12. Start at verse 12. It says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. So here... This is like the personification of wisdom. So this is wisdom speaking. And then it says in verse 13, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. So this is wisdom talking. And then it says, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and I have strength. So again, this is the context of wisdom. Leaders need wisdom. They need the fear of the Lord so that they're actually going to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So that's kind of like the opposite of what wisdom is. And then, and then it says this, and I think this is so interesting. It says, verse 15, by me, by wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule. And nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek diligently find me. Now you can continue to read here, but the whole point of this is, is this is what wisdom is. But wisdom is shown here to be needed to those that actually govern. And in, in a king's reign, the decrees they make are only just because they have God's wisdom. And uh, those that are ruling like princes and nobles actually only govern justly if they have wisdom. And so this, this is something that we as the church need to tell the, the governing authorities that they need God's wisdom. You need God's understanding if you're actually going to rule justly and not be unjust where you turn a blind eye to evil or you uh, don't hate perverted speech. And I think there's uh, a lot of Bible verses that actually speak to this. Here's another one over in Proverbs 29 verse 12 because this one really speaks to what creates ungodly government. And it says, if a ruler listens to falsehood all his officials will be wicked. And that's Proverbs 29, 12. So when there's someone that's in a leadership position, in a rulership position, and they just listen to lies, because that's what falsehood is, then all his, 
officials will be wicked because what happens is that if he only listens to or she only listens to lies then everyone around them is going to tell them a lie because that's what they want to hear and that's going to create uh, a wicked context to leadership and governance and that is not a great environment for godly leadership or godly governance in our world today. Here's another one over in Proverbs 28, verse 16. It says, A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. So here we see this, this contrast between a person who doesn't have understanding and they become this cruel oppressor versus the one who hates unjust gain. And unjust gain is where people are gaining because of oppression. And the person that actually rules in a way where they hate unjust gain will prolong his days. There'll be actually a good governing body for that territory, that land or whatever. And so the Bible has a tremendous amount to say to those who are in leadership. And the church needs to remind these people that this is what we're called to and what they are called to by God to govern this way. At the same time, all of these things show us when there is a person who lacks understanding in leadership, there is going to be oppression. There's going to be these places where uh, there's unjust gain that's happening and people are not going to like that. And this speaks to the world that we live in all around the world. Now let's let's look at some more because there are some more. And I'm just, we're just doing the tip of the iceberg with this context of what the Bible actually says about good, godly governance. Um, here, here's, here's another one over in Proverbs 20, 28. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Now, if you were to say to a king, to a prime minister, do you love your people? I don't know what every prime minister or governor or premier or president or king would say. Do they have a real love for their people? But this Bible verse actually tells us what is supposed to be in the heart of a king, which is steadfast love. And steadfast is just this unchanging love for the people that the king is governing. And when a king or a leader actually has love for people, their uh, throne, which is a, a sign of the reign, is actually withheld. All of the authority that's in the throne or in that position that they hold is actually upheld. And so what we see here is we see that every mayor, every uh, leadership person that's in any kind of organizational setting either, uh, they need to have a love for the people that they're actually called to serve. 
that are underneath and within their dominion. Um, here's another one over in Proverbs 29, verse 26. It says, many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. And I think this is important for us to see because sometimes a king or a leader's hands are tied and they can't bring justice to a situation because it's larger than them, it's bigger than them. And in those cases, people actually need to seek God for justice. Uh, and this is, this is what uh, this particular proverb that Solomon wrote was trying to communicate to, to people. Here's another one, and I, and I think this one, this is so great because, uh, you know, this is just a reminder of how God is sovereign over, our, over rulers. It's in Proverbs 21, verse 1, and it just says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, this really speaks to the sovereignty of God and the leadership that is happening in our world. There, there's a metaphor that's here that the king's heart, so the desires of the king, the things that the king wants to do, is actually like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And a stream of water is just this flow of water, and it goes on to say that he, the Lord, can turn it in whatever direction God actually wants. And so this becomes incredibly important for us as we start thinking about, you know, are there things that we should disobey? Are there things that we should uh, obey? Because if God is the one who is sovereignly in control of uh, the king's heart, a ruler's heart, then we need to take that into perspective when we start thinking about uh, what's happening. And the king also must be aware of those things too. The leaders, the rulers must be aware of those things. And uh, all of these things really speak to um, the role of kings, leaders in our culture. Let me give you, let me give you one more and, uh, and then we'll sort of move on from this topic as we talking about what does godly government and ungodly government look like. In Proverbs 28, 15, it says, Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. Like that just, that just sounds so bad. But it acknowledges that there are wicked rulers. And a roaring lion or a charging bear, that does not look good. No one would ever want to be put in a situation where you got a roaring lion ready to attack you or a charging bear that's already in full flight to attack you, uh, charging towards you. But it says that's a wicked ruler over a poor people. And so, the, again, we see this perspective here where a ruler and how they treat poor people is not to be like a charging bear or a roaring lion. Uh, there's to be grace, there is to be a care and, and uh, all kinds of things taken into account for these poor people. So if we see a charging bear kind of leader 
over a poor people, we know that God actually says that this is wicked. This is just so wrong. This is not what I call godly government. And all through the book of the Bible, all through the books of the Bible, we just see time and time again what godly government looks like, where people are following the ways of God, being obedient to God, following what God has instituted, having the wisdom that comes from God, or on the other hand, not doing what is right in the eyes of God and doing what is wicked in the eyes of God and doing foolishness to the people that they're actually governing. And so if we wanted to sort of boil this down into a really tight few sentences, we could say something like, Godly government is there to alleviate suffering, to care for the afflicted and to protect the vulnerable and seek justice and live out moral biblical laws and bring freedom to the oppressed and seek wholeness for all the people that are there and to have economic growth where the poor are alleviated out of poverty, where there is concern for the poor and the hungry and the helpless and the sick. That's what God actually calls good government. At the same time, what God calls ungodly government is things like oppression and abuse and uh, where the vulnerable are not protected, where there are immoral laws according to scripture, where there is lying and stealing and cheating and all of those things that are happening within the context of the law and uh, unjust treatment of individuals and abuse of their rights and freedoms or increasing suffering in the context and increasing poverty and economic disadvantage. Those are all things that point to ungodly government. And in those cases, the church has a responsibility to hold government accountable to godly government. And that means that it, it just might look like you and I need to write letters. You and I have a responsibility to, to say, hey, how this is being handled is not how God has called us to handle it. Now, people might say, back, well, I don't believe in God and I'm not going to follow what God actually says because I just want to do what I want to do. Well, okay, but having said that, you just need to know what the consequences of that kind of leadership as a, as a king is in, in God's perspective. Like if Christians really do believe that God is the king of kings and Lord of lords, then we're going to point kings and leaders of this world to acknowledge and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so how do we do that? We actually need to pick up the phone sometimes and call and, and just say, hey, you know, here's Here's what God's called you to do. And uh, right now it doesn't look from my perspective that maybe this is happening. And so that's that's how we hold people accountable in this environment. And this is actually a good and godly government. And I would even say that ungodly government needs to be held accountable. And so were there places around the world where it is ungodly government and to you know actually try and hold the government accountable for... Uh, godly government might land you in jail um, because you are maybe coming against me, maybe think you, you are disloyal. And, and it actually has happened to, to many people over the course of history. And so 
what does the church do in this environment? Well, in this environment where we have these wicked rulers or ungodly government, the church actually must live out the kingdom of God in society. And, and this, this is a huge challenge for the church, and especially today. And I'm just going to say that I wish the church would do this today more so than anything else. Because the church, in many ways, especially during the pandemic, has not been living out the kingdom of God in the culture. And so if, if there is ungodly government, if there are things that are happening, then the church has a responsibility to actually alleviate suffering. And, you know, right now when we are talking about people that are sick and need, needing to be cared for through COVID, then the church needs to be throwing up their hand and saying, hey, we want to come and help. Give us a pass to help actually help take care of these people. We're not afraid of these things because we trust God and he's sovereign over all creation. Um, there must be that. There must be the protection of the vulnerable. There must be the protection of of uh, the vulnerable, the aged that are in nursing homes uh, right now and not letting them get a very contagious sickness. And it doesn't even have to be corona virus. It, it can be any kind of virus. It can be any kind of sickness or disease. Uh, elderly abuse, financial abuse, all of those things. The church should be sticking up their hand and saying, hey, we're here to protect people from that. And this is something that the church really needs to be about. And protecting people uh, that don't have a voice in the midst of this environment and telling and seeking wholeness for all people across all walks of life um, and a supporting of economic growth. So when people are going into poverty, this actually bothers people in the church and we're upset about this and we need to do something about it. And one of the things that we're doing here at Pinewood is we've got this free food Fridays thing going on. And so if you need bread on Friday, just come by our church and we give away free bread because we're passionate about actually undertaking the role of God's kingdom in an environment where there are those who have economic disparity. And uh, we have concern for the poor. We have concern for the hungry. We have concern for the helpless. We have concern for the sick. Like that's just the kingdom of God. And there's so many scriptures about the kingdom of God and the church being about the kingdom of God in our world. And one of the things we haven't seen in the church through this pandemic is the church actually standing up and saying, hey, we want to show God's kingdom in the midst of this. And in fact, the church has actually retreated and almost hidden itself during this time. The church has also sort of risen up and become angry about some of the situations that we find ourselves in. And that's actually really not what God has called us to be either. So the church in this season of pandemic that we find ourselves in, we really need to be about our Father's business. And so what are these tasks? What, what is the kingdom of God coming in our world? What does that actually look like? Well, let's look at uh, a couple of scripture verses here. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew. In Matthew chapter 6, we, we actually see uh, as Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And if you grew up in a time where uh, the Lord's Prayer was recited in school, you kind of you know this. Uh, and maybe you've heard the Lord's Prayer before, but the Lord's Prayer has a distinct section of it where it actually says, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that is to be on the church. This is what the church is to be about, where we're wanting to see uh, God's will be done, his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And you need to ask the question, well, what is God's kingdom? What does God's kingdom look like here on earth? And this is the mandate of the church to be about ushering this kingdom in because we are a part of God's kingdom. So if you turn with me over to Luke chapter 9, because here, here we see in Luke 9 what actually the kingdom of God uh, is like. And there's a number, <clears throat> and there's a number of them, uh, a number of passages that talk about the kingdom of God. So we're just going to look at, at some of them. Okay, so in, in Luke 9, verses 1 and 2, it says this, And Jesus, he called the twelve together, his twelve disciples, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Proclaiming the kingdom of God is about proclaiming God's kingdom, where God is ruling and humanity is separated from God. But Jesus came into the world to bridge that separation and we are proclaiming that truth about what God is doing. And so we need to be proclaiming his kingdom in this world, which is the gospel, which is the good news, which we've been talking about, but to also pray for people so that they would be healed and to be cured from diseases. And he goes on to say as, as they departed, they went from these places into all the villages preaching the gospel and praying for people to be healed everywhere. And as we continue on here, this is, this is just what we as Christians are to be about. Let's, let's continue on. We can look in so many different places here in uh, Luke 9 because there's a number of references to uh, the kingdom of God in Luke 9. Because there's uh, a responsibility for the church to be about the kingdom of God. Um, here, here's, uh, here's another one. Uh, Jesus is having this conversation in Luke 9, verse 60. And this is what he calls people to. Uh, so he has, a, a, has this conversation, and I'll start up maybe in verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this is a person who's saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want, I want to be your disciple. I want to come along and be a part of what you're doing in the world. And Jesus says to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. Okay, so he's, he's laying out here what it actually looks like to follow Jesus. And you know, the son of man doesn't really have a place. Jesus, the followers of Jesus don't really have a place to call home. And He's telling them, follow me. But this person responds. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, there's, there's an abandonment that needs to happen for those that are following Jesus, that we're just proclaiming this kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. 
And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying here is that those people who are following Jesus need to be about bringing about the kingdom of God in this world, proclaiming the good news and setting people free, ushering in this kind of environment where we see God's kingdom coming on this earth. Again, we can continue on here in Luke and look at Luke 13. There's a number of different passages in Luke 13. So in verse 18, so Luke 13, verse 18, Jesus tells this parable. <clears throat> he says, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it to? It is like a grain of mustard seed a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And then again, it says, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You see, this is like the progressive nature of God's kingdom. And so this kingdom that God is working and bringing about uh, is something that Christians need to be a part of. And this is our responsibility. And if we actually want to know what the kingdom, specifically the kingdom of God is, let's turn over to Luke 17, verse 20. And so the Pharisees, those religious leaders that were around him, came to Jesus and they said, when is God's kingdom going to come? And Jesus answered them, and he said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is God's people, is God's kingdom, and living out the kingdom in this world. And over in Romans 14, verse 17, we we see as Paul is writing to the church in, in Rome and he's instructing the church in Rome about what, uh, what practical ways they need to live out faith in Jesus. He says in uh, Romans 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is accepted acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You see, the kingdom of God is not it's all these physical things around us, but it is all about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So these are the things that the church needs to be about in the midst of this world. And part of doing that is, is praying for people and encouraging people and upbuilding them, as it says here, pursuing peace with all people trying to bring, be a peacemaker and reconcile differences. Because one of the things we see right now is this massive division in our world around us where we see one group of people that think things should be done one way and another group of people that think things should be done this way. And Christians in this environment need to stand up and be bringing about God's kingdom, which is peace, where there's reconciliation between opposing conflicting groups and that is actually what God has called us to do in this season that we find ourselves in where there's all kinds of crazy things going on in our world so government 
in the scriptures is instructed to do so many things. And as Christians, we're also instructed to come alongside government officials, encourage them, pray for them, support them, and hold them accountable to what God actually calls good and godly government, uh, as opposed to ungodly government, so that they would have love for their people, that they'd have wisdom for their people, that they would seek God's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge to govern the people that they are leading. Now, sometimes in the midst of this, there are seasons where wicked government goes against what God has actually commanded us to do. So some of those things would be if uh, a government commanded us to not worship Jesus. We can go to the book of Daniel, where uh, King Nebuchadnezzar erected a statue of himself and commanded all nations, all people, to bow down and worship him. And we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who actually said, no, we are not bowing down to worship them, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. So there are times and seasons where there are wicked rulers, but it's very clear uh, that what they're asking of believers, followers of Jesus to do is quite contrary to what the scriptures call for. Um, at the same time, there are times when uh, leaders give rules and regulations that we as the church, as believers, must follow because God has actually called us to do that. So what are these times and how do we know? And I think that's the big question on everybody's heart and mind these days is how do we actually know when we need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Daniel, um, and we have to go against what is being told by governing officials that we need to do? Well, <clears throat> there's this phrase, and I, and I want you, if you're listening, to sort of think about this phrase. It's called conscientious objector. Now, if you're familiar with the term, you're going to automatically probably start thinking of military service uh, because it's a phrase that's often used in military service. But there's a time when human law is in conflict with divine law. And in those moments, my duty is to my conscience. And we see that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they disobeyed the king's order to worship the statue whenever they heard the sound of music. Um, we, we actually see this in Jesus too. Jesus lays out this example for us in the New Testament of how his conscience was objecting to laws that were there, and we're going to unpack that. At the same time, he was very obedient to other laws where he encouraged people to pay taxes to, to Caesar and pay to Caesar what he is due. So let's, uh, let's just talk a minute about some of these instances, and then we're going to start talking about our conscience. And next week, I'm going to unpack even more our conscience and how our conscience needs to be in a place where we actually know the difference and how to, how to weigh in on uh, when do we be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and when do we need to be like the example we see in Jesus and in Paul, where Paul is saying, hey, you got to obey 
the governing authorities because they are there, instituted by God, and they are there as a terror to the wicked. Um, and so how do, we, how do we discern this? And it really is a discerning process. And part of that is through our conscience. And so we're going to unpack that more. But for now, I'm going to just talk about these conscientious objectors. So when human law is in conflict with divine law, our duty as Christians is to our conscience. Now, our conscience needs to be informed by the word of God. And our conscience is this value system. It's an internal, rational uh, capacity that bears witness to the truth of God. And that is very important to know because it's not some feeling. Please hear me. Your conscience is not some feeling that you get. It's a rational, intellectual decision-making a process that you have come to because there's values that line up with the Word of God. And our conscience is informed by the Word of God. And here's some things that sin can actually uh, silence our conscience. And it can be a sin, really, to go against our conscience. And that is problematic, uh, in these cases. And so sometimes people in this world that we find ourselves living in are not living and discerning their conscience right now. And it really is important for us to, to do that in this world that we live in. So let me talk for a minute about some real uh, conscientious objectors that we've had in history uh, that are actually protected in uh, the United Nations Human Rights Act, but also in the Canadian Human Rights uh, so some of those examples are military service, people who uh, are at war or countries that are at war and people are proclaiming from a religious or other reason uh, that they can't kill anyone. So those would be called pacifists during World War II. There were a number of pacifists. In fact, my grandfather was a pacifist during World War II and headed to go do uh, service for king and country differently than going to serve in the military. And so the history of Canada is actually, it has a huge section on uh, pacifism, but so does Europe and, and uh, the British monarchy too. But a lot of countries around the world have uh, a conscientious objector to military service. Another area is doctors. Doctors have a conscientious objection to medical procedures. They can uh, say that on ethical grounds, I'm, I just conscientiously object to doing this medical procedure. And that is also protected under human rights and even human rights with the United Nations. And just as another one is clergy. Uh, clergy in Canada are currently protected uh, from doing something that they would not like to do, that they would conscientiously object to. An example of that is is same-sex marriage. If there are people that do, are conscientiously objecting to that, then they are not in a place where they are being forced to do that. So most of these examples are from history, and in some cases, the first people to actually conscientiously object before the king, so to speak, or before rulers, were actually ridiculed, and sometimes they were actually killed for their stance. And, and sometimes they weren't believers, Sometimes they just had a very strong ethic about a particular thing that they thought 
that shouldn't be done. And so they were conscientious objectors. Now, let's talk about this from the, from the perspective of Scripture because we need to see in Scripture that there's a number of things that Jesus actually did where his conscience was against what was actually decreed. So let's turn over to uh, John chapter 7. We want to look at this, at the woman that was caught in adultery. Because this, this passage of scripture, we see Jesus going against uh, what the rulers and leaders of his day were actually telling him to do. And he, yeah, let's just, let's just read this here. So in uh, John 7, starting at 57, or sorry, 53, and then going down to uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. So Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst of them, they say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So here, uh, these leaders bring this woman before Jesus. Now in the Ten Commandments, it actually says you're not supposed to commit adultery. In the law of Moses, as Moses gave the law, he actually gave punishments for breaking of these civil laws. So these were laws that were given through Moses to the people of Israel, and they were to obey them. They were societal laws. They were connected to the Ten Commandments. And they think that they've got Jesus in this, in this moment because they want Jesus to agree with the law and to agree with them because their hearts are hard and to stone this woman. So in verse 6 it says, So they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as, he, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let the one without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, being with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing there before him. So what happened there? Well, the law said one thing, but their conscience said another. And this is where Jesus conscientiously objects to this law, the law of Moses, that's connected to the Ten Commandments. But it's not only Jesus that objects to this. It's actually everyone that came to accuse this woman of adultery. You see, Jesus says, let the one without the sin cast the, cast the first stone. And they were convicted. Their conscience was telling them, no, I've sinned. I've done some wrong things and I can't throw this stone with her, against her. And Jesus, being of the same mind, in verse 10, he says, he says to the woman, where are all your 
accusers. No, there has no one condemned you. And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus says, neither I do, do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. You see, Jesus breaks this Old Testament law here, which is the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. It was connected to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus brings in a whole new approach here. And this is the kingdom of grace that he's proclaiming, this kingdom of God that he's proclaiming. And he says, I'm not condemning you from this, but don't go and sin again. He says, from now on, sin no more. You see, this is this, is this new standard that's in the kingdom of God where we have laws, but we also have a conscience. We have this uh, spirit of God that has called us to be in this place where we're following Jesus and we're doing the things that God would call us to do. And this isn't the only time that Jesus does something like this. Over in uh, Luke 13, we see where Jesus breaks another law. In uh, Luke, so you can turn over there to Luke 13. And you'll see Jesus in verse 14. So this is Luke 13, verse 14. Let us, let us read here. So Jesus, let me just back up a little bit. We should start at verse 10 just to get the context here, what's happening. So Jesus has been teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is... 6 p.m. on Friday night in the Jewish understanding till 6 p.m. on Saturday. He's in the temple, so he's in a building where people are gathering together to, uh, to hear the truth of the scriptures proclaimed and to participate in uh, gathering together and worshiping. And, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. So he healed her. And he laid hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, so he's angry, he's incredibly upset because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. So what's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, part of the Ten Commandments is that the Sabbath is holy. And it's a day that you're not supposed to work and that you're supposed to rest on. And here again, we see the religious leaders, what they did is they created all kinds of other laws to protect them from breaking the laws of God, which is the Ten Commandments. And one of those laws is that there couldn't be any healing because healing was considered actually work. And so this ruler who's in charge of the synagogue, it would be like a priest or a scribe or someone of that nature. And... Uh, he actually tells everybody when this happens, he's sort of takes control. He's like six days, this kind of thing is supposed to happen. But on the seventh day, this is the Sabbath, we're to rest. 
So come back on those other days, not on the Sabbath day. So Jesus has this response. And the Lord answered him and saying, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You see, Jesus broke some rules. And he was conscientiously objecting to these rules because his conscience was informed by the word of God. And we could go on. We could talk more about Jesus with in, in John chapter 2, where in verses 13 to 17, Jesus goes into the temple and the money changers are there in the temple and he throws uh, all the money changers out of the temple and he kicks them out. You know, Jesus has this continuous concern for the poor, the hungry, this the helpless, the sick. And in all of these cases, cases, his conscience is objecting to the way things are being done. So when we're talking about civil disobedience and the church and how does the church deal this, how did uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually know how to make this decision of when it was right? You know, Daniel also had to struggle with this decision-making because Daniel found himself living in a time when it was actually forbidden for him to pray to any, uh, anyone else other than uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, but he still did it. Now, you may think, well, I think if we're worshiping uh, something that's not God, if we're told to pray that we can't pray to God, well, that's kind of obvious. Good. Because conscientious objection is quite obvious because it's our conscience that is telling us what is right or what is wrong. If we have uh, a blurriness to whether we're not sure about this, then we need to spend more time in understanding what God is speaking to us through his word, through the conscience that he has given to us making sure that our conscience is rightly informed about what God is calling his church to do in that moment, in that time. So that's what conscientious objection is. You're not disobeying across the board. You're just consciously objecting to a certain very specific thing that is happening around what your conscience is convicted to be right according to God. Now, we're going to just pause there. We're going to stop because we're going to come back and talk about our conscience uh, because sometimes our conscience uh, is not working. Sometimes our conscience is not being informed by the right things. Sometimes our conscience is uh, sort of taken over by other things and not actually leading us to properly reflect who Jesus is in our world. And that's something that we need to talk about as we're talking about civil disobedience and the church. Because uh, God has uh, called us to live in such a way as Christians that we are behaving differently than everybody else. And what does that actually look like?
So hopefully today as we've been sort of unpacking the necessity of, of godly government in our world and also uh, what to do when we don't see that there is a, a godly government happening. Again, that's supposed to be the kingdom of God, uh, the church being God's kingdom here on earth and ushering in uh, what it looks like to be that way where we're putting up our hand and saying, hey, Lord, send me to help the sick, send me to uh, alleviate the suffering and send me to these places in the pandemic that actually need help where the poor need to be taken care of. And uh, may we not live in fear, but God has called us just like he called the, the nurses and doctors into World War II to be those people. Just like God called uh, people into places where there was suffering like Mother Teresa and poverty to go to those places and to be his hands and feet, to uh, go to places where people need to be fed like soup kitchens and actually take care of these people. Uh, we can see that during the Depression. Like that's exactly what the church needs to be about in those times. Uh, so let's let's be the church today in this world that we find ourselves living in and uh, glorify the name of the Lord and make sure that what the role of the church is clear and that we're working in conjunction with governing authorities supporting them, uh, but also knowing having the wisdom of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel of knowing when is this right time. And uh, as we look a little further down the road in trying to discern, because that's what we're going to be talking about with our conscience, discerning and uh, getting this consciousness that is, a, that is attuned to, to the conscience that Jesus had and how Jesus acted in the New Testament when he uh, made choices to go against the rulers uh, of the religious system that was around him. So hopefully this has been helpful. Hopefully this kind of helps you think through some things and, and prepare you too for the day when you may have to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, and Daniel and, and actually go against some of the things that are being uh, said to you uh, in, by ungodly governments, governments that are actually not worshiping uh, God at all or following his way as King Nebuchadnezzar was at that time period that Daniel found himself living in. So let me pray and uh, then we'll end our time together. Of course, uh, anytime you have questions, uh, just uh, reach out and uh, send a question, email. You can put it on the screen with all the other comments. Uh, you can type it out now and I'd be glad to, to answer any questions about all of these topics that we uh, are talking about. So let me pray. Dear God, I thank you so much that we can just come to your word and we can be guided about how to live in this world that we live in today. Lord, I pray for peace uh, in our land, Lord, between different fractions of people that uh, are against one another, Lord. And Lord, I pray for unity uh, in, in, in many parts of the world. Uh, but Lord, I also pray for our governing officials that they would seek you, that they would have the wisdom that comes from God to lead and to rule. And Lord, that we as Christians would, uh, would point our civil leaders to you and to encourage them to seek you for knowledge and for understanding and wisdom as, uh, as, they, as they govern and as they lead. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd put it on our hearts to pray for those individuals and to seek uh, your kingdom here on earth uh, 
when uh, when we see broken things happening where ungodly things are happening help us lord to to be your hands and feet in those places and to be like jesus to have a conscience that is discerning uh, of the times and seasons that we are in so god we uh, just give you praise and thank you for all that you have done and we pray all of this in the name of your son jesus amen well, it's been great to be together today. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on civil disobedience in the church. Next week, we're just going to continue civil disobedience in the church as we talk about our conscience and sort of discerning how do we actually deal with uh, some of the situations that might uh, present uh, themselves to us. Have a great day. We'll see you again. Thanks. We hope you've enjoyed Coffee and Conversations with Chris. If you'd like to support this program, please visit pinewoodschapel.com give. See you next time.